I'm always thankful and grateful when uh, Chris gives me his, his platform to speak to you this morning. So as we begin, I'd love just to uh, pray with you and then we'll get into it. Uh, so go to God with me. Father, we are just humbled again to be in your presence. I pray that uh, you speak truth uh, through my words and it be about you, not about me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it was 1997 and I had just talked a fellow classmate out of getting baptized. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know some of you are like, ooh, he's getting into it that quick, huh? Um, no jokes, no running around being silly, youth minister. Um, no. Uh, it's the worst thing I've ever done. Uh, 1997, talked a kid out of getting baptized. Uh, last week, Chris talked about the Ethiopian who asked this question, you know, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And for a kid at a summer camp in 1997, the answer to that is Sean. Sean was that answer. Sean was the hinderer that was keeping a, a kid from getting baptized. Um, you see, it was at our church camp the year before my eighth grade year, and my friends and I had just gotten baptized a few nights before. And uh, mind you, we were the cool kids. Um, so our baptism was super important um, compared to what this guy wanted to do. So there we were, um, not wanting him to steal our thunder. We, didn't, we wanted to make sure that, you know, all the older high school girls didn't give him the hugs that were meant for us, right, you know. And so uh, we sat around and we, we got our Bibles out. Because if you're going to talk anybody out of baptism, you might as well use the Word of God, right? And so, so we did. We got our Bibles out. We got around the bunks and we started talking to him. We showed him verse after verse completely out of context about how you have to really, 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 really be sure of what you're doing. Um, you have to um, already be doing churchy things, which we weren't very sure of because, you see, we went to a, a very small private Christian middle school, and he went to public school, so we knew he wasn't doing churchy things like we were, um, even though we were a bunch of foul-mouthed little heathens. So a few hours later, we were successful, and he decided he needed to wait. And the truth is, is I, I don't honestly remember his name, and I don't know what he's doing these days, but if I could, if I could jump in my DeLorean, gun it to 88, go back in time, pull myself out of that cabin, I would punch myself in the face um, because it's the worst thing I've ever done. And I pray regularly that God would forgive me of that and um, accept that I was dumb, young, and I didn't know what I was doing. But the truth is, is that for a lot of us, it's amazing how fast we get very comfortable, very, very comfortable in our Christianity, us versus them sort of mentality. You know what I'm talking about? Whereas Christians, we kind of already have it all figured out the minute we come out of the water and we, we know all the answers and we know how everything's done. And if you do it a little bit differently, you look a little bit differently, you act a little bit differently, we're like, mm, I'm not so sure about you. It's amazing how quickly we get comfortable in that. We get very comfortable in our faith and what we're doing and sometimes what we're not doing. And a lot of times we allow our comfort to actually push people away from God. Since the new year, Chris has been walking us through this idea of life after belief. And he's been talking about the, the church in Acts and really about this new movement that was called The Way. And what they did and how they did it and how, how so few became so many. 
and how they changed the world because they lived in a community that was radically different. The way that they gave of themselves, the way that they spent time together in their community. He talked about how they weren't necessarily setting out to be the church. Because that was a foreign concept. The way we do church would be a completely foreign concept to them. Coming to a building and uh, it, it just would be a different concept to them. But what they were setting out to be is a simple gathering in Ecclesia, a people who loved Jesus and wanted others to know about him. He talked about how these men and women were bold for Jesus. And he talked about how discipleship and truly reaching the lost to know Jesus was their vision, was their purpose. And they pursued that purpose and they pursued that vision with a reckless abandonment. So today I get to continue that. And if you would, open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 9. Uh, I get that section today. And it's one of my favorite sections in Scripture. So Acts chapter 9, it will not be on the screens. Um, uh, let me tell you a few things. Uh, this is, in your Bible, it may be titled Saul's Conversion. Tell you a little bit about Saul if you're not familiar with him. Uh, he would later be known as Paul. Uh, by his Greek name, Paul. Uh, he would later write most of the books that make up our New Testament, if you're not familiar with that. So as I speak about this, and I may interchange them. I, I say Saul sometimes. I say Paul sometimes. They're the same guy um, that I'm talking about. But uh, this dude was a Jew, all right? He was the Jew of Jews. He was named after the first king of Israel. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was sent to his Jewish prep school as a youngster. He eventually trained at the feet of a high-ranking, well-known Jewish temple figure. Saul would describe himself as the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as for the law, a Pharisee. Some scholars even suggest that he was in line maybe to one day be leader of the Pharisees if he'd have stayed on his course, if he would have stayed on the track he was on. And one more thing, Saul knew all about Jesus. Saul knew where Jesus was from. Saul knew what Jesus preached. Saul knew where Jesus hung out. Saul knew Jesus' friends. Saul knew when he died. Saul knew everything about Jesus, but yet he still pursued his followers to arrest them and eventually kill, kill them. So read with me this familiar account. Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, while Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for a letter to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do next, what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So, he, so they led him by, by the hand into Damascus for three days. He was blind and did not eat or drink. In Damascus, there was a man... Uh, a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord. I love how chill he is right there. Um, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And I'm gonna stop right there for just a second because I think this is important and we read over this. I, I love this because the original readers would have got this, uh, this little saying. It's not really, it's not a clever kind of narrative. Oh, Saul was on Crooked Street and now he's on Straight Street. 
Um, Damascus was kind of a, uh, uh, made up of blocks. It was, uh, the way it was designed, it was made up of different blocks and streets. And so uh, in Damascus, there was this really, really long, really, really straight, really, really popular street called Straight Street. So I want you to picture this for just a second. As Saul entered Damascus, he didn't go to some house that was on the outskirts on the city limits where he snuck in all broken and blind. No, he went down the busiest street of Damascus, blind and broken and led by his followers. Everybody would have seen this. This would have been incredibly embarrassing and incredibly uncomfortable for a man like Saul. Continuing on. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this, is my, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and, the peop- and before the people of Israel. And now remember this, Hold on to this verse, people. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, Lord, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. I love this account because I often ask the question, what changes for Saul in his walk with God? You know, obviously other than an incredible encounter with Jesus, um, But what changes? And if you will, and if you'll follow me kind of on my analogy this morning, you know I like to kind of use visual things. Um, What I believe kind of really happens for Saul is he goes from what I'm going to call couch sitting for God uh, to knee dwelling for him. Uh, And if you'll follow me, maybe this will make sense uh, and not just be in my my mind. But um, let me ask you guys this. When you go couch shopping, what do you do? When When you go buy a couch, do you sit on it? You lounge on it? You make sure that Oh, if I'm going to watch the big game, it's nice and comfortable, and it looks good. I mean, I could really sit here, and we should Super Bowl next year, right here, and I'll watch it from here. You know, when we buy a couch or a chair or whatever, we want to make sure that it's comfortable. Because why would we buy an uncomfortable couch, right? I would be willing to believe that Saul had grown very comfortable in his faith with God. He knew what God expected. He knew all the laws. He knew all the rules. And he was very, very comfortable in that. He knew who Jesus was. I I would imagine that Saul, being as as high up of a Pharisee as he was, probably had a pretty nice setup at the Pharisee compound. Probably maybe had a nice couch of his own. Um, Probably never worried about food, never worried about clothing, never worried about money. It was all taken care of for him. He was very, very comfortable. And I even imagine Saul getting the place in his faith as, as these new followers of the way begin, praying things like, Lord, let me, use me, let me do what you want me to do with these people. 
just praying, being in his room, praying, God, I don't know what to do about these Jesus people. What should I do? God, provide me vision, provide me direction. I need to take care of these people because they're not your people anymore. And so God in his great infinite irony sometimes answers, okay, Saul, you've been praying for something to do with these people and okay. And so on the road to Damascus, he is brought on his knees and he is asked, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he wonders, who in the world is this? And Jesus answered, it is I, Jesus Christ, whom you persecute. Now get up and go. Get up and do something different. I have plans for you, Saul, that are beyond what you think and what you're comfortable with. And so he gets up and he goes. And Saul, who's been seeking and asking God's direction to deal with these Jesus people, gets his answer and it is in the most uncomfortable way possible. I love what Jesus tells Ananias. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Talk about uncomfortable. Talk about just how uncomfortable that must have been. Jesus has pulled Saul away from everything that he knew, everything that he had grown accustomed to, and everything that he was comfortable with in his faith to carry the name of Jesus to the rest of the world. I mean, just think about how uncomfortable Saul must have been after this moment. After he gets baptized and he begins to go and he preaches and people are like, whoa, whoa, hey, isn't this the dude that was trying to kill us all the time? So much so, it's even funny, Barnabas has to like phone up the rest of the disciples and they have this like powwow meeting together because this is Saul, he's been killing everybody. But now he wants to talk about Jesus? That's an uncomfortable situation. But the truth is, is that God was never calling Saul to be comfortable. And the truth is, is God is never calling anyone to just be comfortable. If you think about it in the, the Bible, the Bible is full of uncomfortable moments. Uncomfortable uh, situations where God pulls people out of what they thought they knew and into uh, situations that are extremely uncomfortable for them. Think about Abraham told living in a pagan society to get up, to take all of his belongings and move away to a land he's never been before. And oh, by the way, your old wife, who's been barren for all this time, will have a baby. That's kind of uncomfortable and odd. Oh, and hey, Abraham, you know... um, that covenant that I'm making with you in order for us to have a sign together, I'm going to need you to circumcise yourself. That's uncomfortable. And hey, that kid that you've been longing for that I've promised you, when he's born and he grows up, you're going to have to take him up on a mountain and kill him. That is uncomfortable. Or maybe you're, you're, you're um, Joseph and you've been put in prison and sold into slavery by, by your brothers, and finally you've gotten out of the jail cell and you've risen to some sort of uh, prominence, and every day when you go to work, you have to withstand the sexual advances of your boss's wife, only later to be called a rapist. That is uncomfortable. Or maybe you're David, and you're told that you're going to be the next king, but the ruthless king who is on the throne is still there. And by the way, your BFF's with his younger son. That's uncomfortable. Or maybe you're a 13, 14, 15-year-old girl 
and an angel of the Lord comes to you and says, hey, you're going to have God's baby. And oh, by the way, the culture that you live in when you're an unwed pregnant woman, you could be stoned to death. That's uncomfortable. Or maybe you're 12 nobodies who are called away from your job, called away from your friends, called away from your family to be a part of something that will certainly get you killed eventually. That is uncomfortable. Or maybe you're one of the countless Christian martyrs who have died on their knees for the case of Christ. I don't know what's more uncomfortable, those things, or when we simply complain that we have to stand too long in church. I don't know. Or I don't know what's more uncomfortable, those things, or when we have to be around people we just don't like or who are different than us. I don't know what's more uncomfortable, those things, or when we have to um, be around people who do things just a little bit differently than us, and we just don't like it. I don't know, church, when the gospel of dying to ourselves became the gospel of comfort. I don't know. I've, I, when I open the Bible, it's not Burger King. You can't have it your way. It, you can't. But we strive so much to be comfortable. And don't confuse what I'm saying. I'm not talking about how necessarily we do church, but rather this is maybe a condemnation of how we've grown comfortable with our Christianity and lost our priority of Jesus above all things. Maybe we become a people seeking comfort in our brand of Christianity over Jesus. And when anything disrupts that comfort, we shout from the rooftops, anything but the name of Jesus. And sometimes we think what we're doing is in the name of God, but it ne never really is. When we get uncomfortable, we often complain about the things that don't lift the Father up. Paul tells us in Philippians not to, do, not to grumble, not to complain. Do anything. Do what you do and don't grumble, don't complain about it. And, and listen, Paul has every right to grumble and complain about his life. He had everything he needed as a Pharisee, and he loses it all. He gets beat. He gets stoned. He gets left for dead outside of cities. He gets shipwrecked. He gets put in jail time and time again, and he never complains about it. All he does is point people to the glory of Jesus. And it may be counterintuitive, but I think sometimes in our spiritual christian -y world, it is the comfortable who often complain the loudest when their sense of comfort is disturbed. I'm going to say that again. It is the comfortable who, are often, who often complain the loudest when their sense of comfort is disturbed. When we're told to get off the couch and reach the lost, oh, I don't want to do that. When we're told to get off the couch and leave our sins, I don't know if I really want to do that. When we're told to, hey, let's try this because this might connect somebody to the name of Jesus. And we're like, I don't know. We've been doing this the same way forever. Those sorts of things make the comfortable truly uncomfortable. And what happens is often when those comfortable people get uncomfortable, they hide behind the loudness of their complaints and their protests. It is easy and it is comfortable to picket and protest, to boycott, to stand loudly on the street corner yelling at people. That is easy and that is comfortable. It is easy to sit at home and post garbage on Facebook about politics and everything else from our nice comfy couches on our laptops or our iPads. That is truly comfortable. It is easy, I would say it is even easy, to stand outside of an abortion clinic with a picture of a dead baby 
and yell at young women as they walk in. That's easy. But you know what's uncomfortable? Is to sit with a girl, a woman who's just made the hardest decision of her life and just sit in that space. Letting her know that she can be redeemed. You're not validating her choices. You're not validating her sin. But you're telling her there is nothing that you can do that can get you far enough away to be pulled back into the fold of God. That is uncomfortable. And the truth is, is that those who get on their knees and those who sacrifice and those who live like Paul does, they don't pray for more comfort. Those kind of people don't pray for a nicer couch. They pray for endurance. They pray for patience. But mostly, they pray that the name of the Lord be lifted higher than anything else. They don't want to be comfortable. Because they know in their comfort, they lose sight of Jesus. But in our typical American churchgoer, we pray for more comfort. We pray for comfortable things. And not like the comfort we seek when we lost a loved one. That makes sense to pray for those sorts of things. But it's the kind of comfort that causes you to not have to deal with the people you don't like or be put in awkward situations. Or maybe we pray for comfort to be in situations that, that will never test our faith because we're just not really sure that we have enough faith to go through it. We want the easy road because we may not really believe what we say we believe when push comes to shove and adversity enters our life. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't like that. And listen, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of things that I don't like. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Sheena's like, hey, man. Um, a lot of things I don't like. You know, I don't like it when uh, people don't put their carts back in the grocery store parking lot and they just leave them out of the cart corral. I just want to run into them with my car. Put your carts back in the cart corral, people. Or I don't like it when uh, it takes me that one second to move my foot from the brake to the gas and the person already honks at me. I just want to get out with my tire iron and hit them. I don't like that. And I don't like it when I go to Waffle House and the lady finds out that I'm a minister and begins to tell me her life story and how she's had cancer and she, and she wants me to pray for her. I'm like, I just want to eat my greasy waffle, waffle that's going to make me sick later. I just want to do that. I just, that's all I want. But I listen and I write her name down and I pray for her. I'll tell you a story, and, and I debated telling this story um, because uh, you know how so, sometimes preachers uh, will I'll let you behind the, the, the fourth wall here. Um, sometimes we'll tell you about our friends, but really we're telling you about us. Um, so I asked Sheen, I said, should I tell this story um, from a friend's perspective? Because I don't want to sound pretentious, and I don't want to sound like I'm patting Sean on the back, because uh, up front, this is not what I wanted to do in this story, uh, but but, and it'll make sense in a second. So please don't come up to me afterwards and be like, I can't believe you did that. Because I don't want that. Because it's not about me. And it's, about, it's about Jesus. But I'll tell you this story. Um, I, one night, it was a, a few years ago, it was a Wednesday night after church. And I had done youth group. And uh, it was the night before Sheena's birthday. And typically, because I'm, a, I'm an amazing husband, I like to go uh, buy flowers for her and have a card. So when she wakes up in the morning, it's in the house and she can be like, oh, he's so sweet and lovely. Um, so I go to Publix and it's nighttime, it's dark, and I get out of my car and here comes a guy. 
Uh, I don't know what it is about me. I don't know if it's my smiling, beautiful face or if it's um, because I'm the scrawny guy and they pick me out like a a lion picks out a a weak wildebeest. I I don't know. Um, but, But I get asked for stuff in parking lots all the time. I don't know why. But so here comes this guy. And typically, it's usually when I'm leaving the store, and I don't carry a lot of cash on me ever, Um, maybe a dollar at the most. I'm a plastic person. And um, uh, and so normally my response is, all I have is a card, I'm sorry. Or if I'm actually at my car, I'll reach in the the change area that, you know, the cup holder that is full of change that we all have, and I'll give him some change. Or if I do have a dollar, I'll give it. But this guy caught me as I was going in. He told me his story. Uh, hey, I'm traveling. Uh, I'm, I'm homeless. I'm broke. I'm living in the woods, and I've got a tent uh, that I'm staying at, and uh, I'm just hungry. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going in the store. If you want to come with me, I can get you a few things. So we walk in, and uh, I say, hey, I've got to go to the flower card section, get a few things, and we'll meet back at the register. So I go where I'm going, and he comes back, or I come back to the registers, and here he comes with his arms full. And I noticed some bags and I noticed some, some cans of things. But what really catches my eye is those big white styrofoam containers that you put raw meat in. And he's got two huge ones. I'm like, this is odd. So as he gets closer, I, I say, so what you got there? He's like, you know, some cans of this and bags of that. And I'm like, what's with the raw meat? He's like, oh, it's a bunch of chicken wings. I'm like, okay, a bunch of chicken wings. And I'm like, what are you going to do with all those chicken wings? I thought you were living in a tent. And he says, he says, well, I've got this little propane stove cooker thing, and I can cook them. And, and I'm like, well, what are you going to store them? How are you going to store them? You can't eat all 20 pounds of chicken wings you got. And he's like, well, uh, I'm just going to wrap them up in the grocery bag, and, and hopefully they'll keep. And I'm like, and at this moment, I'm faced with a choice. Do I say, do I, do I be the jerk and say, no, put, the, put all that chicken back? Or do I kick him in the leg and run? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, or, or, you know. Or do I do something different? And I say, okay, well, come with me. And so we go to the Ziploc section, and I buy him some Ziploc bags and some of those little Rubbermaid containers. And we go back to the register, and I start ringing stuff up, a dollar, 50 cents. Then we get to the meat, and it's like 20 bucks, bling. Another 20, bling. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. And I paid, and again, this is not about me, but I paid 60 bucks for food for this guy. And we walk outside, and I'm like, hey, I'm a minister. I work at this church up here, and uh, we have a homeless outreach that's every month, and it's actually this coming weekend. You can come over and get a shower, a shave, get some clothes, get some food, um, get some supplies. We pray, and then he goes about his, he goes off, and I go off. And the truth be told, church, is that's not my comfort zone. I think I said in, in communion thoughts a few uh, weeks ago, I don't really like people because um, people are, are hard. People are, are dirty. People are uh, ugly at times, and it's hard. And that's not my comfort zone. Some people, some people in here are like, yeah, I love those situations. I can't wait for those situations. That's your comfort zone. That's not my comfort zone at all. But I did it, and I do things like that, not because I want to, because I certainly don't want to. I do it because I pray, and maybe too often, that God would use me. And as a Jesus person, when I pray God use me, and He gives me opportunities, I better get up off the couch and do it. If I'm going to pray for that, I better do it. But that's not my comfort zone. That's not where I like to, to be. 
You know, I'm not in youth ministry. I'm not in ministry at all because it's easy or it's comfortable. It's rather difficult at times and it's rather frustrating at times. And I walk through hard situations and I walk through bad stuff with teens and with families. And it's never easy and it's never comfortable, but it's worth it. Every moment of it is worth it. So what does this knee-dwelling life really look like? I think it actually means doing what Jesus' people do. Looking at what the people of Jesus actually did. It means being uncomfortable for the cause of Christ. It means being involved in people's lives. The ugly, the broken, the hard parts, and not shying away from those things. It means that when people come forward on a Sunday morning, we don't whisper, I wonder what she did. Because I know we do it. It means dropping to our knees and praying, God, how can I be used in that person's life so that they can better see you through me? Not wondering and whispering, I wonder what's going on with them. But it's looking for an opportunity to be involved in an uncomfortable way. It means looking at our way of life and asking, does my life really match up with the sacrifices Jesus is calling for? calling me to, or am I just couch shopping, looking to be comfortable? You see, our couch shopping Christianity and being comfortable in our pews does not connect people to the heart of God. The people of God have gotten too comfortable in thinking that just being a church building will draw people in. Just because we have a nice curb appeal and just because we have a big sign out there does not mean people will come in these doors and get to know Jesus. Or they have gotten comfortable in thinking that policing the morality of the world will draw people in or trying to convince people uh, the political world of our, of our ideas and force Christian values on people through a vote will draw people in. Those things do not work. What the world needs isn't more people who sit on the couch saying, you ought to do this and if we only did this. What it needs is people on their knees being reckless forgivers being bold people of God who pray crazy things like, Lord, let someone see Jesus through me. And when he does it, you grasp that opportunity. You grab a hold of it and you point people to who Jesus is. Not to your brand of Christianity, not to your church, but you point people to Jesus. And if they come here and become part of East Brainerd, that's awesome. And we would love that. But if that's all we're worried about is another member of our church, we're just being comfortable on our couches. We've got to rise to a bigger occasion. The truth be told, knee-dwelling looks a lot like sacrifice. Saul, as Paul writes this to the church in Romans, or in Rome, he writes uh, in chapter 12, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You know, Paul's not saying that your acts of worship make you a living sacrifice. Sometimes we get it backwards. We think that coming to church and checking our boxes... And doing our churchy things, we sang the songs, we did the communion, we heard a message, we said our prayers, we went to Bible class. Sunday over, we're sat living sacrifices. Yay! We flip it. 
But Paul is saying something totally different. He says that if you are a knee-dwelling, a life-giving, a hope-bringing, a passion-filled, devoted, Jesus-following, Holy Spirit-bringing, God-following person, and you sacrifice more than you take, that, that is your act of worship to the Father. So, for me, so long ago, as a two-day-old Christian, I got really comfortable with who I thought I was in my faith, and who I thought was in and who I thought was out, and I wasn't willing to let somebody who was a little bit different than me in, and I was doing it in the name of Jesus. It wasn't until, for me, kind of like Paul, um, I didn't get a cool, crazy, awesome encounter with Jesus um, like he did, but it wasn't until I realized that that Jesus is calling me to be uncomfortable, to get off the couch, to be on my knees, to do the hard things, that I realize that Jesus is not calling us just to sit in church and be happy with that. He's calling us to be uncomfortable, to be on our knees, and to be bringers of life to the world around us. It wasn't until I figured that out that I could truly fulfill his purposes. And Paul For Paul, it wasn't until he became sacrificial in his lifestyle that he was able to truly be who God was calling him to be. So my challenge to you, church, is that we would learn to be uncomfortable for the sake of Christ. We would learn what that truly means. Chris has been talking about who's your one? Who's your one? And are you praying for that person? Are you praying for those moments? Because a lot of us pray for that but then we don't seize it when God puts it right in front of our face because it looks uncomfortable, because it looks hard. It looks like conversations we don't want to have with people. But if you really think about it, God is putting those opportunities in your face day after day, always. We just have to get off the couch. And if you haven't been praying for your one, I would begin, uh, I would challenge you to begin doing that and ask for those opportunities. Ask for God to get you off your comfortable spiritual couch and get on your knees and be involved in the lives of people. Today, for some of us, we've been going through spiritual motions and we've found ourselves laid out on our spiritual couches. And the only time we ever get uncomfortable on these couches is when someone disrupts our comfort and says, hey, you really need to be doing what God is calling you to do. And we're like, I don't know if I want to do that because it's really comfortable here. And if that's where you are, I would challenge you to repent, to get on your knees, and to allow God to use you in uncomfortable ways so that you can show somebody else his glory and lift Jesus above all things. Now, for some of you maybe in this room, if you've never decided to follow Jesus, your couch is something different. Your couch is that of sin, and you got real comfortable on it. And if you have never put Jesus on in baptism, we would love to talk with you about what that means. But know this. Know that if you're going to be a Christ bearer and you're going to wear his name, you can't sit on the couch. You just can't. It's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult and it's going to be full of awkward moments and it's going to be full of hard moments and it's going to be full of uncomfortable moments. But Jesus tells us it's worth it. And Jesus tells us that his way and his yoke is easy. And Jesus tells us that if we just follow him and we get on our knees and we lift him up above all things, we will find life and find it to the fullest.
All those who have gone through uncomfortable moments in Scripture would tell you it's worth it to go through those things because what you get is something the couch can never offer. So if you're ready to put on Jesus to, uh, you know, I, I know our baptism is ready. We'd love for you to do that this morning. We would love to allow you to die to yourself, be forgiven of your sins, and be raised a new creation. But East Brainerd, it's time to be uncomfortable. If we want to grow and if we want people to know Jesus in our community, we've got to do things that are hard. We've got to do things from our knees, lifting up the name of Jesus. I don't know what it is for you this morning. I don't know where you're at necessarily. But if there's anything that we can do, if we can just come alongside with you and walk through those uncomfortable moments, those hard moments, we would love to do that as a leadership with you. It is my prayer that we be people of our knees and not people of the couch. People who seek and pray for opportunities to be involved in people's lives in uncomfortable ways. And when God puts those before us, we grasp them with every fiber of our being so that somebody else will know the glory of Jesus Christ and not us. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, please come down and we'll pray for you and talk with you as we stand and as we sing.